Dose of Leadership Podcast, Episode 91. Welcome to another episode of the Dose of Leadership Podcast, the show that brings you inspiring and educational interviews with today's most relevant and motivating leaders. Each episode is dedicated to highlight real-life leadership and influence experts who dedicate their lives to the pursuit of the truth, common sense, and courageous leadership. And now, here's your host, Richard Ryerson. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Richard Ryerson. Thanks for tuning in to another episode. This show is brought to you by my sponsor, Audible.com. If you're like me, you like to read, but you're having trouble finding the time to squeeze in all those great books, well, Audible.com is a perfect solution. Audiobooks are great. I never thought I would like them, but I love them now. It's a great way to get caught up. I listen to and get caught up on the book as I'm driving to work, if I'm exercising, any free time working out in the yard, I can get caught up in all my reading. You can go to uh, my website, doseofleadership.com slash audible, and you can uh, download a free audiobook. Any audiobook they have, over 100,000 titles to choose from, you can download it for free, listen to it. You can sign up for 30 days with no obligation. If you don't like it after 30 days, you can cancel your subscription. But again, it's no risk to you. Go check out doseofleadership.com slash audible and make your smartphone smarter. Well, I'm so excited to have on the show today. Ed DaCosta, he's an executive coach with vast real-world corporate experience. He's influenced the lives of thousands of executives worldwide, from young professionals to top executives of Fortune 500 companies. His coaching, one-on-one, as well as his online group programs, help his clients master the power of intentionality so that they establish control of their purpose and their calendars in order to become the best possible version of themselves. He currently serves as one of the faculty members and best-selling author John C. Maxwell's Leadership Development Program. That's how I came across him. As you know, I'm a member of that program. Ed has a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering from West Virginia University, as well as a Master's Degree in International Management and an MBA from the University of Texas. He's also an adjunct faculty member at West Virginia University's College of Business and Economics, teaching professional selling and entrepreneurship. He's a Boston native, a diehard fan of the Boston Red Sox, and he lives in West Virginia with his wife, Linda, and his three children. Ed, welcome to the Dose of Leadership Podcast. Hey, I'm delighted to be with you, Richard. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I'm glad to have you on the show. You know, I came across you, obviously, you come uh, part of the John Maxwell Leadership Development Program, and, and listening to you and listening to your phone calls and your teachings and being a student of yours myself, I was intrigued by your passion for just common sense leadership. So tell me a little bit more, tell our listeners, how you became kind of so involved or around that kind of world of coaching and leadership. Sure. Uh, like so many of us, uh, Richard, uh, some of uh, some elements of our lives are very much uh, intentional and planned and deliberate, mm-hmm. and something like that that you might have, you know, dreamed of being when you were a kid. And as you get older, you realize that a significant portion of our lives is really serendipity, yeah. taking advantage of opportunities and things that life, you know, throws your way. And so I had no desire whatsoever uh, to be a coach. I didn't know what a coach was until just before I became a coach. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to be an engineer. And then once I became an engineer, you know, I wanted to climb the corporate ladder like, like so many others. And uh, so I went to graduate school at night while I was uh, working in, in Texas, uh, Texas Instruments as a mechanical engineer, and uh, then I got into management and engineering management and sales management and sales marketing management, and I was living on the road. And uh, for anybody that has kind of followed that that path, and millions of people have, 
uh, at a certain point in time, it gets old. Not for everyone, but for many. And certainly for me, it got old. I was living on an airplane. I was in Asia and Europe and all over North America uh, on a regular basis. And I had a wife at home with three young children. Mm. And that's just not a good combination. And so I decided that I wanted to start a company, start my own company. And I did uh, at the end of 2002, uh, beginning of 2003, so just over 10 years ago now. And it was to be a consultant, to help people with the things that I knew, sales, marketing, uh, engineering, management. So I was going to be a consultant. Consultants work on projects. You know, we, we have deliverables. We give reports, analyses, and, and such. Right. And I did that. I, and uh, one of my first clients, I did a, I did a market penetration plan uh, for him. And after... This is a longer answer than you probably wanted, oh, no, but I'm, no, I'm going to tell you the truth, as yeah. I always do. Uh, at the end of the engagement, he said he wanted to continue meeting with me. And I said, terrific. What do you want, to, what do you want me to do? You know, what's the project? And he said, no, I just want to meet with you. And I, and I thought, okay, I got that. What, <laughs> what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to meet with me. And, you know, it was like an Adam Costello, you know, <laughs> who's on first routine. And right. I thought, well, let me get this straight. You want to pay me to come and meet with you. And what, what am I going to do? <laughs> and in hindsight, it, it was right in front of me. But Richard, it, at the moment, it was not. That's funny. He said, well, you know, I get to talk things through with you, and you're like a sounding board, and you've got good experience, and you, you tell me like it is. This guy was a CEO of a, of a growing company. And he says, I love your frankness and... and and I said, okay, well, I didn't even know how to write up that as a proposal. I, I mean, I, I didn't even know what to call it. So I just, I didn't even call it coaching. I called it consulting. And then a few months later, I got a call from someone who had, had been referred to me by this same client who said that um, I was his coach. Wow. And they wanted to know if I had openings to coach them. And I'm not kidding. This is, you know, maybe a little embarrassing, but I'm not embarrassed. I had to look it up. Coach, calling me a coach. I've coached my kids in baseball and soccer and basketball. I know what coaching is. But was 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 what I was doing the same as coaching? And then it dawned on me, yeah, it it, it is. It, it's the same thing. I'm not doing the work for them. They're doing the work. So then I decided to become a student of coaching and, and went to school for it, and, and I've been coaching ever since. But no, it wasn't anything that I had ever aspired to do, you know, from early ages. And, and frankly, I don't know a coach that that uh, can honestly tell that tell that story. That you know, I've always wanted to be a, an executive coach. Yeah, right. I mean, you always wanted to be a firefighter, or an astronaut. I know it's funny. You, when you... I wanted to play shortstop for right. the Boston Red Sox, and then I remember the first time I realized that some of them were younger than me. And now, now of course they're. It's my son's ages, so it was devastating to me because my, my excuse for years and years was I wasn't old enough. Right. It had nothing to do with my inability to play yeah. baseball at that level. Yeah, yeah now you course. don't have that excuse. nothing yeah. to do with that. It had everything to do with I wasn't old enough. And then I got to high school, and nobody called in college, and nobody called, and I finally had to face the, the harsh reality that if I wanted to put on a Red Sox uniform, going to have to buy it online and walk around the house in it. You know? 
Well, one thing I, always, I have, by the way, well, my it, wife it, that, mocks me for it. But. That, that's a nice visual there. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> hey, can you can you name as you're climbing up that corporate ladder? I guess like two things that I'm curious about. Did you, um, as you were, especially as you gained more leadership responsibility and accountability, did you find that people were kind of gravitating towards you for like coach like answers? As you look back at it now, when when in it, you probably didn't realize it, but were people kind of coming to you as a coach when you were climbing the corporate ladder? Oh, absolutely, Richard. In hindsight, isn't it always so clear to us? Mm-hmm. But at the time, no. No, I had I had the blessing of having some wonderful leaders and managers in my career, and I had the blessing of having some horrendous managers and leaders. And so I, through the, the very same school that, again, most of us go through, the School of Hard Knocks, learned firsthand what it felt like to be micromanaged and to be treated disrespectfully and, and right. dishonestly, and and how wonderful it felt when I had a boss that cared about who I was and my development. Now, he wanted me to produce. He had no less focus on my production and my effectiveness. It wasn't a zero-sum game that he, he didn't take away from his business responsibility and our business relationship by adding to our relationship this personal touch. Um, And so, again, call it whatever you want, I started emulating him. Right. And I realized that my people, and and again, John Maxwell has said a lot of things that most of us have thought of but never said as articulately as he does. You know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Yep. And again, I didn't coin that, but but I I actually lived that for a long time. As I, you know, care very much about people, and and I'm not afraid or ashamed to let them know that. And that just works very very well, regardless of your title uh, in the organization. Yeah, you know, one thing I've I've really been on a especially the last three months or so, and I've been writing and articulating in some of my interviews. I've certainly touched on this theme. I kind of want to get your your thoughts on it too. I think the essence or the secret sauce to great leadership is is courageous authenticity and vulnerability. Um, you coach a lot of people, and and especially you probably get you know pretty down and uncovering some some harsh limiting beliefs and limiting doubts. What what do you think about that when when you hear me say that that the secret sauce is authenticity and vulnerability to a successful leader? Sure. I, I think I agree with both. I will say that the first word, authenticity, uh, has been written and spoken about quite a bit, and I think is, by and large, uh, Richard, accepted. You know, again, there's semantics involved, and, you know, authenticity is not the same as integrity, is not the same as honesty. The words have maybe subtly different meanings, but they're all about the same thing. Right. You know, can can the people who who are in your organization, again, whether it's an official organization or, or you know, any any person that you're influencing, can they trust you? So that's pretty well, I think, accepted. The second word, however, again, I am in violent agreement with, that is less widely held, this notion of exposing your vulnerability. And, uh, again, I think it humanizes a leader when a leader acknowledges his or her imperfections 
and that you don't know the answer. And, and I think the dirty little secret of it all, not to oversimplify it, but as you, you said earlier, I, I'm a no-nonsense, you know, I, given a choice between simple and complicated, mm. I will choose simple every time. Amen. Um, and, and that is, the people already know that you don't know. Mm-hmm. It's the emperor with no clothes. It's, it's, that, it's that old fable about the emperor having no clothes. The people knew the emperor had no clothes. You know, you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah, absolutely. He, yeah. he, he got sold a, a suit of the finest silk, which was, of course, bogus, and he paid top dollar for it and rode through the town, and he was naked as a jaybird. Right. Yet he was supposedly wearing this silk of this suit of finest silk, and it wasn't until someone said, and again, I'm I'm probably just abusing this fable, but <laughs> but you know when a child said, "Hey, he's naked," that's when kind of the the bubble was burst, and everyone realized that okay, this was this was nonsense. Well, this myth that the top leaders, the CEO, the CFO, the you know COO, everyone else, that they know everything that there is to know about the organization and the strategy and how to win. That's a myth. Right. That's a myth. And, and the rest of the organization, to varying degrees, Richard, they know that's a myth. Yeah. Okay? The question is, does the leader acknowledge that it's a myth? And I think the best leaders absolutely acknowledge it and empower their people to think for themselves and act on their own intuition um, and not wait for the right answer from the supposed oracle in Mahogany Row. Right. Um, so so it's, it's a significant issue because, again, corporate culture, not to paint with too broad a brush, but corporate culture to this day is still widely built upon this pyramid where the higher you go, the more you're supposed to have knowledge and information and power, and the more common it is that you find people that are fearful that the rest of the organization will find out that they don't really know what they're supposed to know. Yeah, I think there's tremendous strength. If, of, I got, In fact, I just did a, a class here before this interview, and I got asked that question. They said, well, don't you think that exposes a tremendous weakness? And I said, quite the contrary. I said, I think it takes... It's tremendously inspirational when a leader stands up and says, look, I don't know how we necessarily at this moment how we got here. I don't know why this happened. But that they coupled it with, you know, I do know, however, that we will see it through. We will be successful or whatever. They they, oh, they, yeah. they suspend that belief of, of knowing how it's going to get done. And I think that is the key element of being vulnerable. I, I think there's tremendous strength in that. I think back to all the leaders who did that, that exposed themselves and said, I don't know. And this, everybody gets a little more confident and comfortable with that leader. So I don't know. I think. Yeah, I, I've seen it firsthand just as you have. And it's counterintuitive to some people. They think that if the leader shows the slightest bit of vulnerability, that the troops will panic. Yep. Now, if the leader shows vulnerability with regard to principles and values, like we talked about earlier in terms of authenticity, integrity, honesty, and whatnot, well, then the troops should panic. Okay? Yeah, that's exactly right, yeah. But if you hold fast to principles and values, but acknowledge that you don't have consummate knowledge of the market and the competitive environment and every customer situation and every internal issue, 
um, I think that is incredibly engaging and empowering of the team. Yeah, for sure. You know, with a lot of the companies that you've worked with and coached, I guess on the corporate side, what do you think, uh, especially as an organization gets larger, there's that tendency for the institution to dampen the inspiration, I guess. And um, how do you keep that from happening, do you think? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, great question. You do it all, you do it all the time. You do it every single day. Um, again, there's been thousands and thousands of leadership books written, and, and the vast majority of them have value to add. Um, one of my favorites I remember learning as a, as a young guy, as a young manager, was uh, this whole management by walking around. Yeah. And again, I'm not, I'm not, you know, espousing that as a, as a, you know, my own notion. But, but just staying connected to what's actually going on, staying connected to where people are, their heads, their hearts, their ambitions. You know, the voice, the VOCs, voice of the customer initiatives. What is that all about? Again, it's an NBA buzzword, but, you know, it's just knowing what your customers actually want. So I think, you know, the antidote for that kind of old command and control is customer and employee intimacy. Closeness is talk to them. Don't have a quote-unquote open-door policy that's nonsense, you know, that's, that's not real. You know, that you, you tell people that there's an open door, but, you know, if you walk through the door, there are significant negative consequences of walking through that open door. You know, because your boss, let's just say you were my boss in an organization, Richard, and the CEO, which is neither you nor me, had an open door policy, and I went in to the CEO, and then you found out that I went in to see the CEO. If the reality in the organization is that you could take punitive action for me, or even if, even if there was a threat of punitive action, well, that open door policy is is nonsense. It's nonsense, right. and the CEO may may be unaware that it's nonsense. His or her intentions may be pure, and might tell investors and, and other CEOs at the golf course that he has an open door policy. But truth of the matter is. Yeah, but everybody's happy because I have an open door policy and nobody nobody exercises it. Right. Nobody comes in. Like, well, have you thought about other possible explanations for why nobody else comes in? And as an executive coach, I get, you know, really unfettered access to people with the door shut one on one and have had just countless epiphanies with clients where, you know, <laughs> it dawns on them. Something like I just said, like oh my, maybe that's why nobody comes in <laughs> to tell me what's really going on. Huh. Wow. That's extremely rewarding when you can help a client, you know, come to an understanding, a realization that they didn't have before. Yeah, and it's, yeah. Always, it's always amazing how basic the, the solution is, too. It's just it's staring you right in the face sometimes. I'm always surprised, too, at... Um, well, I, I get it, though, because I've been in that situation where you, we, we get put in these leadership roles and leaders tend, because we were successful in some technical ability, we were the best accountant or we were the best, you know, whatever we were. And then we get into the role and everybody's kind of miserable. And why did this rising star all of a sudden fail until you realize that leadership skill set is completely different than being the best accountant, for example. But uh, Totally. Even It's the email. Yeah, the Michael Gerber book, the E-Myth, the Entrepreneur Myth. Right. You know, and that is the person who, 
who has the technical knowledge that's at the heart of a particular business is not, most of the time, is not qualified to run the business with that technology. Right. They're not. Um, and so I, I'll never forget one of the first uh, pure coaching clients that I had. This is when I was marketing myself as a coach. It was a, a wonderful company, a fast-growing company, and I was coaching the CEO and the VP of sales, coaching two individuals. And after I was working with them for about six, seven months, I got uh, told that uh, the chief technical officer wanted to meet with me. And I thought, oh, terrific. You know, I had met him once before, but I didn't know him. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, maybe he wants coaching. Maybe he wants coaching for, you know, for some of his people or what have you. So I actually go to the, go to the client site, coach the two that I do coach, and then I meet with the chief technical officer, and he tells me, Richard, that he owns the company. Oh, my. Privately held company. I've been working with them for over six months, and my bad, I had assumed that the CEO who was an owner, was the majority owner. Wow. And he was not. The majority owner, like 70, 80% of the company, was owned by this chief technical officer who had the, who had the wherewithal to hire his own boss. Wow. On the org chart, he worked for the guy that I was coaching who, in fact, worked for him. And you, you, it's just so rare that you find someone who's, who understands very clearly what he what he brings to the table but understands just as clearly what he does not and hires and hires you know the talent that he needs well that's great that he had that self-awareness and the the, the courage to to do that that's very rare wow that's amazing it is yeah no doubt what do you think is the biggest mistake that you've seen um, that leaders make more frequently than others yeah, um, withholding information. Mm. Withholding information. Uh, again, you know, a little white lie is is a lie. Mm-hmm. You know, you're supposed to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in court. If you don't tell the whole truth, you're lying. You know, and uh, and so once again, I'm not suggesting that you tell every piece of information to every single employee. That's not my point at all. But when there are competitive threats, when there's a lost order, when a key person leaves, when there's something negative, uh, get out in front of it. Yeah. Get out in front of it. it. You know, think about the politicians that get in trouble. And again, I don't want to go off on a tangent here, but it's the cover-up, right? It's yep. the cover-up which is worse than the original crime. Yep. Okay? So, you know, haven't we learned that, you know, when there's, when there's something going on that is of concern... You know, be honest, be frank with people, and don't try to hide it, because they'll find out eventually anyway. That's not why you tell them. It's not because you, you're going to get caught. You tell them because it's the right thing. But you're going to build trust, and you build a fortitude, strength of character in your organization when you share with them, hey, we're being challenged here. You know, it's time to step up. So that's that's one of the biggest mistakes that I that um, that I see. It's that old, uh, you know, they can't, you can't handle the truth. That Jack yeah, Nicholson line, right. you know. 
And most of the time, the organization, they absolutely can handle the truth. Well, and I think it's, you know, I've seen that a handful of times um, where they don't want to give the bad news. Maybe the, this was crazy, the organization I worked at, the, the, uh, they came to expect a pretty sizable Christmas bonus every all the employees you know they shared the Christmas bonus well the the numbers didn't come in quite like they thought but the amazing thing was they were still in the black it wasn't like they were in the red they still made a profit right sure and, and so they were silent like oh we don't want to make the employees nervous that uh, we're not as profitable that, that think bad things are happening and so they were trying to figure out what to do about the bonuses and Instead of just coming up front saying, hey, look, here's what the numbers were, uh, bonuses aren't as big, and being completely transparent, you know, they mold about it for a couple of weeks, and then that void that was left in the employees' minds, they filled it with something, and it was ten times worse than what, you know. Of course. And, I um, mean, I forget what the, the – the, there's a cliche, you know, the, the, imagined, the imagined problem is typically far less scary far more scary than the yeah, actual really. problem. That's they got right. it wrong. Yeah. You know, it's the devil that you don't know, you know, is is far worse in your imagination than the devil that you do know. So let them know what's going on, uh, and so they're not speculating, you know, constantly about it. Yeah, I would, I would always argue, I argue that, you know, they may not like the bad news, but if you kind of go with the mindset that you owe them the truth... Um, you'd be surprised at the kind of rallying behind the bad news effect that can happen if you just are completely transparent. Like I said, and going back to that vulnerability piece, hey, look, you know, the numbers are bad. The competition is more fierce than I thought. I need your help, guys. What are we going to do? How are we going to turn this around instead of just trying to That's right. you know, paint a pretty picture on it? One, 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 let, me, let me just add one comment, though, because it's not all one way or all the other way. Right. Of course, people want leaders to be vulnerable, but they don't want you to be vulnerable all the time. They want a strong leader, too. Yes. And not to say that vulnerability is the opposite of strong. You know, vulnerability doesn't mean that you are weak. It just means that you're open to showing your imperfection. People want a strong leader, but being strong doesn't mean that you're always acting as if you're the master of all you survey and have all knowledge. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's a great point. I think you got to have that confidence uh, piece with it. And that's why I said that caveat or, or the addition of, you know, the suspending the belief of how it's going to get done. You just know that it's going to get done. You know, that competitive winning oh, attitude absolutely. that you got to have is like, I know, I, I don't know how we're going to get through this. I just know we're going to get through it. And, and No doubt. Yeah. So you have to see it before it's visible. That's right. Which Again, to an engineer, you know, there's part of me that just says, that's illogical. <laughs> no, you can't see it before it's visible. That's By definition, right. look up the word visible. It's like, well, okay, I'm not talking about engineering here. I'm talking about human development and personal development. You have to see it in your mind. It's the, it's the visualization that elite-level athletes go through, right. uh, you know, that, that causes them to perform in that way physically. So it's uh, to some people it's a little touchy feely, and, and honestly, Richard, there's I, I still have clients to this day that are very leery of any of this touchy feely yeah. kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, I, I get that too every now and then too, and I guess I don't advocate you know um, crying over everything or sh- you know showing. You know. <laughs> 
you know, be a strong leader, but don't don't sugarcoat anything. I don't know. It's just there, I think there's great strength in admitting when you don't know. I think that that's the kind of the easiest kind of scenario. Like I don't know the solution to this. I'm kind of perplexed here. You know, and but be confident. You know, you don't have to. I think a great example of like when Hurricane Katrina went through, and I forget what the governor's name was at the time, but um, just kind of the contrast of. You know, everything was just falling apart, and then they're crying out there. On the, that didn't exude a lot of confidence when you saw that. So I wouldn't no, recommend that. And, you know, contrast that with Giuliani after nine eleven, who was, you know, the calm, confident, um, you know, in a crisis. So I, I don't know. Yeah, you got to be a strong leader to your point. You know, a lot's been written. I, I'm curious. This I just had a conversation just a couple hours ago again um, with this guy. We were talking about the millennial generation. And I've talked to a handful of guests on here. And, um, you know, I'm 45 and you're, you're a little bit older than me on that, but, and you deal with a lot of, you know, probably people the same age as you. I don't know. Do you deal, do you see, well, you've got kids in that generation, so this will, this will be good. You know, a lot of negative things have been written about that, but I got to tell you, doing this podcast, I've ran into a lot of folks that are probably about your kid's age, a little bit older than my kids. Um, and I see a tremendous amount of positivity and uh, kind of a, a rebirth of entrepreneurship or being a part of something bigger than themselves. Um, I don't necessarily buy into this idea that that generation just doesn't, um, they're expecting uh, immediate satisfaction and results without paying the price. What is your thoughts on that in, in kind of the, the leadership arena? Sure. Yeah, I think I think the definition of becoming an older person is that you resent the generation behind you. I think yeah. every generation in history has looked at the generation behind them, and maybe there's a few exceptions, um, with disdain. And, and you know, you're not like we were. You know, the generation before mine, I'm 50, so I'm five years older than you are. You know, the generation before me is the greatest generation. Yeah. You know, generally called the greatest generation, fought World War II, my father's generation. And... You know, I'd like to be part of the generation that's after the one called you know, the greatest generation. <laughs> like, well, what are we? Chop liver? Right. Um, and so, yes, I see in young people uh, a lack of passion, a lack of entrepreneurial um, zeal. But I see it no more prevalently, no, in no higher percentage than I do in people my age, right. our age. Yep. And because, of course, I teach at a university and I teach entrepreneurship, I get exposure on a regular basis to people just as you described, 19, 20, full of passion, yeah. deep passion for not only making the best of their lives and taking advantage of opportunities and technologies, but as you alluded to, making a difference in the world. I mean, there are just so many examples. Yes. Of, of young people, the famous ones, uh, and those that aren't so famous. That, you know, you, you don't have to become a billionaire to make a difference. And, and you know, of course, they'll, they want to become billionaires, and that's cool. You know, we're going to live in a capitalist society, and I think there's, there's a lot to be said for setting goals uh, that are very, very challenging. Uh, but uh, I see quite a number of them that truly do. They want to make a difference in their communities. Of course, they want to provide for their families some of whom don't even have a family yet. You know, right. to them, their family is, you know, their, their parents and their siblings. But they want to be able to provide stability for 
their future families. And, you know, for example, I've had a number of students who got into entrepreneurship because mom or dad got laid off mm. because they got, you know, part of a riff, a reduction in force at a, at a large corporation and have committed at a young age, I will never work for a company. Right. I will only work for my own companies. And again, I'm not, I, I'm not advocating that, but if you feel passionately about that, then go for it. You know, I, I learned a lot in the corporate world, and I'm very grateful for yeah. my experience in the corporate world, but I, like them, I'm not going to work for another company. Yep. You know? Well, as we wrap up here, and um, what advice would you give to people, especially um, who are kind of dipping their foot in the leadership pool for the first time, or they're just developing as a leader? What is the best advice you could give someone getting into a leadership position for the first time? Sure. I, I, I have, uh, you know, a lot of stories that I could tell, but uh, my, my favorite one for, for this particular type of question is uh, three words, awareness, intentionality, and accountability. Mm. Be very conscious. Be very aware of where you are and where it is you want to go. Be very intentional. I mean, in, in the bio that you that you gave for me, you know, that word intentionality uh, is there. Um, that's the second word. But you can't be intentional about where you're going until you've decided where it is you want to go. Yeah. Even though you're going to, you know, change your mind you know, as you as you get older, as you progress in your career. But start with a, an awareness of point A, where you are, and at least a good, solid explanation of point B, where you're going, knowing that there's going to be a point C, D, E, and F, and all the other letters of the alphabet after that, particularly if you're a, a you know, relatively young person, say in your 20s. Start with an awareness. And then, armed with that awareness, start with the intentionality. What are you going to do about it? Now that you know the, the gap between A and B, where it is you are and where you want to be, what do you intend to do about it? Because just knowing, just being conscious of it, it doesn't do anything. you got to take action. Right. It is that old, you know, five frogs are sitting on a log and four decide to jump off. How many are left? Five. Because deciding to jump off is not the same as jumping off. Right. You've got to jump. Right. So what is your intention? What are you going to do? And then, of course, the last one, accountability, is who's going to hold you accountable? Some people can hold themselves accountable. When they've written it down, they're stubborn enough, and they're going to hold themselves accountable, and they'll you know, spare no expense and, and deprive themselves of sleep and social activities in order to achieve their goals. For many, though, they need somebody else. It doesn't have to be a coach, obviously. It can be, you know, a, a spouse, a, a sibling, uh, a friend. It can be anybody, actually, that's going to, in a kind or, you know, s benevolent anyway uh, style, hold you accountable. Somebody with those three words in their minds, just they get on track and they stay on track and they move on down the track. And um, that's that's my best piece of advice. Well, I love it, and I love the idea because you're so so true. Um, and I say this a lot that a lot of us are on autopilot. I know I've been guilty of it, 
but the intentionality piece is, is spot on in the accountability finding. Oh, yeah. yeah. So I love that. Oh, sleepwalking. Yeah. yeah. People sleepwalk through their lives, man. Don't sleepwalk. Yep. It's like, you know, I'm like not a big fan of television. You know, too many people wasting time watching television. You know, how many TV shows have you watched, Richard, where the characters on the TV show are watching television? Yeah. <laughs> There's very few. Yeah, right. You know, All in the Family, right, back in the day, Archie Bunker. Yeah. There's been a few where, you know, they'll show glimpses of some of the characters watching TV. But what a boring show that would be. Right. What a horrible show. The, the characters were all watching TV. So, so that's what you're doing. That's Somebody true. who's making a show about your life, would they be showing three, four, five hours a day of you sitting in front of a TV? Yeah. Turn mm-hmm. it off. Get out there and live. Don't sleepwalk. I love it. Well, my friend, where can people find you? Uh, give a quick plug where people can uh, can connect with you. Sure. Well, my name is Ed DeCosta, and if you just look up eddecosta.com or just Google my name, I'm on you know Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter. And so, again, if you just enter my name in a search engine, you'll find me. Uh, I'm blessed. My name is not John Smith. Uh, you know, if you were if you were an author and a speaker and a coach named John Smith, I don't know how people would find yeah. you. You have to change it. But Ed DeCosta, there's, I think there's one other guy who runs a, runs a, a karate outfit up in Massachusetts. So there's a lot of folks that know me a little bit and think I have like a seventh degree black belt in karate, which I actually don't, but I don't tell people that I don't. <laughs> <laughs> so That's just look funny. me up, they'll, they'll find me. All right, awesome. Well, I'll have links to this on the post when I get it posted, so they'll be able to, to link to Perfect. it if they make it to my website. Ed, what a thrill. Thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for giving us all your insights. Thanks for hey, coming my on. my pleasure. Hey, I appreciate what you do. I've been listening to the podcast. I love it, and I'm honored that you would include me, and uh, keep up the great work, Richard. Right on, man. We'll talk to you soon. All right, take care now. Bye-bye. Richard invites you to become a part of the Dose of Leadership community. Visit doseofleadership.com and sign up to receive his free Common Sense Leadership ebook, a guide that highlights how all of us can learn to become calm, confident, consistent, and courageous in all aspects of our lives. Richard is also available as a speaker for your next event. Richard specializes in practical leadership and change management. He has a philosophy of inspiring everyone to think and act like a leader, which is based on timeless natural principles and common sense. You can get more info by visiting doseofleadership.com.